This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Massive, massive robbery. Like, it's a robbery. $22 million that belonged to somebody else. I know this feels like a victimless crime. Nobody was murdered. Nobody was tied up. Nobody's gone missing. Um, now, now, does this go the route of Goodfellas? And does are there people that know things? And it'll take a Robert De Niro character in Goodfellas to start snuffing out people who know things about how this happened. But Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun broke this open yesterday. A massive heist at Pearson Airport and $22 million is gone from a major Canadian bank. How? Where? When? All the, all the trademark journalism school questions need to be asked. Now, before we play this clip from the uh, officer explaining this yesterday, let me just point out, and I haven't run this through management, and it's uh, I, I don't want to get into trouble, but I'm absolutely willing to go out on a limb here. If you know who committed the Pearson Airport $22 million gold heist, and you text me at 416-870-6400, and that person gets arrested, you give me a name. You give me a name. You, 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 you know, lay the trail with breadcrumbs. You don't want to reveal yourself. That's fine. I'll do the work here. I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'll give you a hundred bucks. If you tell me that's the reward that Toronto Today is offering, I'll give you a hundred dollars out of my own pocket. You want tens and twenties? That's fine. You want an e-transfer? Even better. You want 50 toonies that are going to be harder to trace, a lot like the $22 million in gold? I'm also good with that. Here's what the Peel Police uh, Regional Inspector said yesterday about this robbery. On Monday, April 17th, 2023, an aircraft arrived here at the airport in the early evening. As per normal procedure, the aircraft was unloaded and cargo was transported from the aircraft to a holding cargo facility. Once this cargo was offloaded at a holding facility, subsequent to its arrival, this high-value container was uh, removed by illegal means from the holding facility. Awesome. Like, again, I I don't want... If I find out someone was roughed up, then I I think the bloom is off the rose here and we're all a little disappointed that's the case. Um, By the way, upon that announcement, upon the broadcast of that announcement from Pearson Airport, many of the accomplices, well, showering with soap and uh, and hot water, not taking baths for wimps, uh, many of the men uh, showering involved in this crime uh, reacted like this. Daring pre-dawn raid at the Latanza cargo terminal at Kennedy Airport. The FBI says $2 million. Port Authority police say $4 million. The city cops say 5 The council has not said anything. They promise to break their silence soon with a press conference. From the scene of the heist at JFK, it looks like a big one. Maybe the biggest this town has ever seen. Nice going, Jimmy. Setting it all up anyway. But then again, Jimmy started to whack people uh, who ended up, uh, he, he thought, could talk. Now, I don't know if anyone's heard of this uh, concept, gold laundering. This can be done. I'm going to read this from Wikipedia so you know it's true. Gold laundering is the process whereby illegally obtained gold is melted and recast into another form. The recasting is performed to obscure or conceal the true origin of the gold. The recast gold is then sold, thus laundering it into cash. Like, it's one thing to launder money. That's the entire concept of the Ozark miniseries for like four seasons. But gold laundering is a thing. Um, not a suspect. She has an alibi. Don't look at her. She can't claim the hundred bucks, even if she did it. 
Um, it'd be nice to spend for a weekend, but no, sorry. Uh, Sheba Siddiqui's been cleared as a potential suspect. You are at Pearson a lot. Um, I am. So I'm yes. going to point that out. I'm, I'm going to. Oh, I, I told you it's my dream to rob a bank. To be involved in a $22 million gold heist. This is incredible. It's incredible. To me. This story is just unbelievable. I don't know how something like this happens. It there is going to be a movie about this. Absolutely oh, I don't want a movie. Blended. I want ten hours. I want a ten hour Netflix special. I want every episode to be like seventy four <laughs> minutes. A movie's not long enough. But here's the thing. I don't think that they're ever going to catch this. Oh, person. I think they will. Okay, okay. Well, you do. and I have a dis divide. I I think somebody's arrested within two weeks of this. I think this is so what? much harder to pull off. There's video. No there's emails. Way. There's tracing. Well, the damn emails will will end up catching them. There's they- email. No, I think in this these people are way too smart to actually pull this off. So this happened in a public area, a public warehouse of Pearson Airport. How do you let that much gold show up in a public area? That's what I don't understand. Yesterday's press conference, they also said that it's too early to say whether this was a professional job. <laughs> of course, this was a professional job. There's got to be some kind of organized. Crime element to this, uh, which I just think is delicious. And this isn't the first theft, I don't know if you know this, from Pearson Airport in this manner. In 1952, there was about $215,000 worth of gold bars, which would have been valued at $2.5 million today, that were mysteriously stolen. Uh, they were never seen. There were no suspects that were ever named publicly. And that story went around the world. But that's nothing compared to the amount that was stolen. Think yesterday. how easy it was to hide then. And even if you had a tip, there wasn't even like a like a voicemail you could leave in 1952. You'd be like, well, so I'm calling the inspector, but he must be home having dinner with his wife. So there's no way for me to get the information that I know who did this. Like it would have been way harder back then for that to happen. Maybe. But I, I actually I don't think I think that they would be so this didn't happen overnight. This this is planned for months, something like this. There's obviously, there's got to be an inside guy, don't you 100%. think? hundred percent. Yeah, there's an inside guy. Everyone's being questioned right now. Anybody that works there, I feel for you. But uh, no, I don't think I don't think people that? at like Cinnabon and uh, and 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 Subway <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing though if it was the Cinnabon guy? That my hero. <laughs> well, didn't, my hero didn't. Um, uh, what's his name? Better Call Saul started working and making cinnamon buns on Better yes, Call Saul. That's where he started a, his career. You're right. right. I just don't understand how that weight in gold and other valuable items, they aren't getting into details of what that is yet. How do you, you don't just walk out of the arrivals area and, you know, hail a cab or your friend comes to pick you up, you load it into the trunk. You can how wheel you- it out. You can wheel like I've seen. That I, listen, much, Sheba. I've seen. Heavy- I've seen some of these families of eleven people try and fly. Uh, you know, on a fourteen-hour flight across the world. Like, there's a lot of luggage. There's a I lot of luggage. I suspect that there. there were not eleven people leaving the airport <laughs> together. And I would imagine it's not a family with children. I imagine there would be eleven men. Oh, I don't know. Case. I expect an eighty-two-year-old woman to be arrested and, the, and how, be even if it the, was maybe not eighty-two, but group. if there's a there's a woman. Oh, it's amazing. It's I'm, amazing. We're going to the theater to watch this movie when it comes out. We can't stop talking about and it. And you're just, saying two weeks. I, right? I yeah, two weeks? yeah. I, I'd love, I'd love for people to weigh in. Sheba says they'll never be caught. I say within two weeks, we've okay. got, we're gonna have a, the trial of the century when we uh, track <laughs> these people down. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty, Toronto. Ramadan ends officially. Help us out. Educate us. Ramadan Yesterday, ends today. It's Yesterday, done. it no, ended. It, 
It ended yesterday. I've been fasting for a month. Thank you for putting up with me being grumpy and nah, all. No, 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 no. You've been in a relatively good mood. I, I get grumpy when I eat too much. I'm like, damn it, why did I have that, you know, that <laughs> Well, I think it's the weather that has a lot to do with it. But it is over. Um, and, it, you know, it was a difficult month in a lot of aspects during Ramadan for Muslims in the city. I mean, there was men who tried to drive his car into pe- people at a mosque in Markham. There were two visibly Muslim women who had a gun pointed at them in Kitchener. There's been a, you know, a lot of Islamophobia that's been happening this month. Uh, a man who shattered a, a mosque door in Montreal or a woman who was, who had a knife pulled on her, a visibly Muslim woman on the, on the subway in Toronto. So it's been difficult in that regard, but you know, Ramadan is like a spiritual cleansing as well. It's not just about not eating, not drinking. Um, and we are just, I go all out with my kids. So we've been mm-hmm. just celebrating since last night. I do a big treasure hunt for them. Uh, for all of their presents. So they've been getting, you know, they had clothes and all these things along the way of the treasure hunt. And then the big surprise is um, they don't know yet. They just know we're going somewhere, but we've surprised them with a Disney cruise. Uh, so let's see what, they, they don't know what's happening. They just know we're showing up at Pearson Airport. Maybe they think we're going to rob it. Exactly, yeah. Maybe we'll rob it. <laughs> They're going to be in on it. I think you'll be able to get through security easier. I think security's focused on other issues than your family of six coming through and going on your uh, on your Disney uh, but cruise. But it's just, and today's Eid. So thank you for that great pronunciation, Eid Mubarak, to you guys as well. Uh, why it, why am I not supposed to call it Eid El Mubarak? What's the difference no, between Eid and Eid El? Why do I Eid, see an E-L well, in some, Eid in some writing? Eid is like, it, is saying Merry Christmas. Eid al-Mubarak is saying Merry the Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so it's Eid al-Mubarak. Uh, and there are so many celebrations happening. It doesn't matter what you believe in, whether you believe. Everybody is welcome. Like, Exhibition Place is going all out today. They're having such a huge celebration for anybody, everybody. Petting zoo, carnival rides, arcade games, amazing food. Uh, and it's just a one big happy celebration. That's good. That's good. Well, that's good news because you mentioned some of the um, the downsides. And I I often think like the I remember how I felt the night of there was coverage of the Quebec City mosque shooting. And that's six, six years and almost six and a half years ago. Now, we you and I talked a ton about how we both felt with what happened in, in London. I took that really, really harshly because I know that city and it's not deemed a, a hateful city. But I yes. wonder if if we're. Like maybe the rest of us woke up to a lot of um, racism and and uh, and and anti-Islamic behavior after the mosque shooting. You might tell me, Sheba, it, it was there all along. This was just a wake-up call to everybody that wasn't Muslim. But but you experienced sort of tiptoeing around things before that, being worried that something like that could happen. You know, you talk about how you grew up in London. You talked about I think what you said in the last segment was like everybody was white right mm. where you were from. Mm. Me too. I grew up in Ottawa, the little pocket that I grew up in, my entire school, everybody was white except for me. Uh, me and one other girl. Her name was Shuba. So Sheba and Shuba. Right. That's like Uma Oprah with the Letterman So people Academy would Awards. come up to me and be like, oh, so is it anybody from India? They have to be named, <laughs> named the letters SH. <laughs> people would ask me that. Uh, but so I, I didn't grow up in a very diverse area. But I never experienced any type of Islamophobia at that time growing up. Uh, now, you know, since that mosque shooting, honestly, I was in shock about it. Yeah. I just didn't think that we happened so close to home in such a great country. Uh, I love Canada. I'm so proud to be Canadian. So that was a really big shock. Uh, and now you see, you know, things are unfolding. People are becoming a lot more vocal about what's happening to them. And police always say no matter how big or small uh, the crime is or the attack or the hate wh- language, whatever it is, report it report it so they can get an idea of how much is happening uh personally you know it's 
I, I haven't experienced a lot of it. I do hear about it. Oftentimes it's subtle. You just, you know, never know. But I mean, today's a day of celebrating. These conversations do need to be had. Uh, but today I just want to eat all day. And of course. Relax. Do you feel like in, in a, it's tough to, it's a not a minute and a half conversation. Do you feel your children are growing up in a better place than you did? And we just know more about these incidents and we call this stuff out more. Like we are, we have to be moving in the right direction. But, but besides some of these terrible things that happen, aren't we? How, how do you view it? This is a great question. I mean, I also think we live in a cancel culture, which I don't like, mm-hmm. right? If somebody does something or says something, they get canceled as opposed to having a conversation around educating them or getting to know a, a different perspective. I just think that that's more important right now in terms of whether they, I didn't really experience anything growing up. So for them, and neither do they, I'll be honest with you, but it might be also uh, uh, where we live, right? I mean, the conversations that are had at school, all of these different things, I think, factor in the teachers and the conversations had with the teachers, the diversity that's brought to the te- to the schools. Uh, I, I think that all factors in as well. You're probably seeing as well. Um, it's it's uh, it's certainly far away, but I know that it's got some local influence. Um, what's happening in in Sudan right now is terrible. Like it's it's awful civil mm-hmm. war right now. Countries are calling for an Eid ceasefire in Sudan, but yeah. Ethiopia is involved. Sudan's involved. Um, U.S. forces are trying to be there to keep the peace. Saudi Arabia and Qatar's involved. Like it's it's a bit of a mess in that area. There's just this violent power struggle um, that's broken out, and civilians are just caught in this crossfire. And and like you said, people want to celebrate today, and they're they're running for their lives in in a war torn yeah. country where yeah. I think it's closer to 65 percent Muslim population. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news today's talk six forty Toronto. I think a win for many that want more answers on Ontario Place. We've talked about it a ton. It's taken up a lot of oxygen or early days because we're talking seventy days left of a mayoral campaign. But uh, our next guest running for mayor was part of a win that 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 certainly buys some time until uh, there's more answers from the Ontario government about all that they plan to do and the commitment they're making with their chunk of Ontario Place land. Our guest is Josh Matlow. He's running for mayor of Toronto and watch your vote on June 26. Josh, it's great to have you back on Toronto today. Thanks for making the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. What does yesterday do? The big headline is City Committee defers the Ontario Place land swap, but lay it out in basics for our listeners. What does this mean? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, as as many of your listeners already know, the Ford government announced that they want to uh, build a giant spa, a private spa where people would have to pay to get in right on Toronto's waterfront in Ontario Place rather than do what most Torontonians expect, which is that Ontario Place should be for us all. Our waterfront should be public. We want an animated, lively, refreshed, yes, but uh, a public space that all Ontarians can enjoy, whether or not you've got a cottage or a backyard, which describes, you know, many Torontonians don't. So, um, you know, we're advocating for that public space and the Ontario government, along with Therme, which is the Austrian company that would build that spa, um, have come forward with an application to build what they want to build. So what we decided to do yesterday at committee at City Hall is rather than accept the city staff advice, which is to swap the land that the city owns. And just to be clear, the city owns 16 acres of property, both land and water, right along the waterfront at Ontario Place, even though the rest is rest of it around it is provincial. 
The reason why the government wants it so badly is that they need our land and water to be able to move ahead with uh, privatizing our waterfront and allowing for that spa to be built. So um, rather than accept staff's, staff's advice that we capitulate to the government, so, so it, and especially even before we've had a chance to review their proposal fully, like they just put in their application, we should say, we're not going to do that. We're going to defer this until we get some basic information. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? One is um, we, we actually want to have a decision about what, what kind of development would be allowed there. Number two, We'd want to see the copy of the lease with Thermae, with the Austrian company, to understand even what, what we would be approving, essentially, if we handed over our land. And, uh, and the last part is, is a proposal that I put forward. It was part of the package, which is that if, if Doug Ford decides to escalate this, meaning the province could decide to say, okay, you're saying your your the city's land isn't for sale or isn't open to a swap. We're just going to come in and expropriate it, meaning we're just going to come and take it and give you a few bucks for it. Well, they're able to legally do that to city land, but the province can't expropriate land that's owned by the government of Canada. So I also want to explore whether or not if we mm-hmm. sold it to the government of Canada for a marginal cost, like a dollar for, for something like that, but with an agreement that the land remain public, right? Uh, that, that's, that's something that the feds would explore. So that would be a creative way to get around Ford being able to. So you bought, you bought some time here. How much time do yeah. you think you've bought in essence? Well, uh, this is uh, this is a deferral uh, at the very least until uh, we decide on who is going to be our new mayor. And obviously, I, I am working on earning the support of Torontonians to do just that. And uh, and then, uh, you know, ho- hopefully um, uh, we we choose a mayor. And, and that's certainly what I would do, which is a, a mayor who would say our waterfront is not for sale. We Ontario Place should be for all Ontarians. We also want to protect, um, our, you know, a very sensitive uh, environment down there. I mean, we have, there's everything from foxes to minks to beavers to 170 species of birds. 15 species are on the provincial species risk list. Mm-hmm. You know, so this, this, is a, this is an area of our city that's meant for all Ontarians. And I will be a mayor who will say our waterfront's not for sale and we will do everything we can to challenge the province to come forward with a plan that's in the best interest of Torontonians. And I believe that we can do that. I mean, I believe that we can be successful, but we can't simply just roll over and hand over our land the first moment that they ask for it. All right, one more on Ontario Place, but but it is complicated. Ontario Place is 155 acres. It looked like the province committed to 43 acres of public space. You and I have talked about Navy Pier in Chicago before. In a word, it's it's yeah. awesome, but it's a private public mix on the shore of Lake Michigan. Navy Pier takes up over 50 acres. Like how much? I, I don't think we can look at a scenario where we say outside of, say, the Live Nation concert venue, everything else should or could be public because there's just that. I, I get the Ontario says, well, the, 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 I get that, too. So, so what's the number of, of the 155 acres of Ontario Place that should be public, and, and what would you uh, deem this is okay to privatize? Well, so I'm not going to go over the exact number on the radio with Doug Ford. What I will say is this. He's not listening, Josh. Come on. <laughs> he doesn't listen to your show, Craig. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> but, but, but this is the core principle. The waterfront, the shoreline itself, uh, is, is just irreplaceable. 
that has to remain public. Our waterfront, I actually think over the years, uh, Toronto and Ontario made grave errors to allow so much of Toronto's waterfront uh, to become inaccessible to Torontonians. You know, many places around the world protect their waterfront and access to their waterfront for the public. And I just don't believe that we should continue down the path of privatizing uh, what should belong to all of us. So um, that would be my core focus. Now, if we look at if we look at a more holistic plan, where we look at the whole exhibition lands, the city's lands, along with the provincial lands of Ontario Place, and come up with a plan that yes, there will be private elements that needs, and I agree that there, that some of the private elements can help sustain, like feasibly, the economics to to support the public space. So I'm not against that. I actually think that there are creative ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't. But but the idea of that sort of monster spa right at the water. And by the way, I'm not even against. I like. Spas can be wonderful to go to. <laughs> I get that too. But it doesn't need to be um, like eating up our waterfront where the lake only becomes this backdrop while you're in interior pools. That's, this, that's stupid. Well, we, you know, a, a spa can go somewhere else. Uh, so there is a way yeah. to do this. I believe that you can put all the right things together without destroying the public waterfront and we could retain that as public space. You costed out what it would uh, cost to increase access to the Toronto Public Library. You costed out what it would access to um, yeah. allow schools to be open more at night for community things, whether it's playing basketball, using the gym. You you are running against candidates right now that just haven't provided a lot of substance with numbers right now. I, I know we're only you know three miles into the marathon, four miles into the marathon, but yeah. ev- eventually, it, it. I don't know if it's frustrating you already that you're putting numbers behind ideas and some candidates aren't. Is it frustrating? Um, I'm not frustrated because I, I really don't see my campaign as one where we're running against people as much as we're running for what I'm proposing to make Toronto a more safe, livable, and affordable city. So that that is my focus. And in fact, um, uh I'd be more frustrated if I didn't believe that we could do that. And I, and I see a path to uh, making Toronto the kind of city that I, that I believe it can be. I think most of us believe it can be if we invested in our priorities. So, uh, but I also, like, I recognize that politicians make announcements and promises all the time. They get people's votes because it sounds good, but they can't actually earn people's trust because they can't demonstrate how they're going to deliver those promises. So I'm just... I decided from from day one, I'm not going to have a campaign where I make a commitment where I can't demonstrate how I'm going to deliver it. And it's 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 my responsibility to demonstrate to you, Greg, or any Torontonian exactly if I if I tell you I'm going to do something, I've got to demonstrate how I'm going to do it. And I and I and I think Torontonians should be challenging every candidate to do the same. I got one I want to ask about housing, but but the Open Schools Toronto plan, many people have suggested, although the idea at its surface is fantastic, would custodians be in there at three and four in the morning? Like, will the unions and the QP workers, for example, that went out last fall, are they coming in to clean up schools or tidy things up with, with if, if those schools are being utilized till 10, 10 or 11 at night on a weeknight? Um, so we weren't we weren't talking about four in the morning, um, but there are. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't no, know. What, no midnight film festivals. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Fine. I hadn't. I hadn't. I hadn't considered that. No. No. But but, but re, like re, this is the reality. Um, I I speak with uh, communities uh, everywhere from Etobicoke to Scarborough, 
who are 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 desperate for more community centers. Um, you know, and and you know, looking for spaces for youth to get programming, for kids to stay active off their screens, for seniors to not only continue their education but not be as isolated as many are. Um, and community centers, admittedly, are expensive and it takes a long time to build. I know I'm dedicated to getting them done, but we have public buildings today that we can use more efficiently, whether it be schools, whether it be libraries. And in our schools, we have, uh, you know, rooms, gyms, uh, these spaces that are used for our kids during, during the school days, but in the evenings, weekends, holidays, they just sit vacant. And we can open those spaces up for all sorts of programming, everything from girl guides to, um, you know, tech courses for seniors to you name it. Um, and uh, it's a better use of public spaces um, and, um, and communities, you know, communities are healthier. Um, mm. less isolated and, 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 and safer when there are public spaces to go to. And I, you know, I see, and this is a longer story, but I see, you know, how, you know, churches and other public spaces that have declining congregations that are often redeveloped, we're losing public spaces in our neighborhoods uh, for people to come together and have programming and learning opportunities. And schools are at the hub, the heart of every one of our neighborhoods, but they're not used as well as they can be. Yeah. So let's use the public spaces we have better today. Josh, thanks so much for the time. I got a couple public space questions, but we're going to have to leave it till, uh, till next time. So thanks let's revisit us. that next week. Thanks for this time today. Anytime. Thanks, Greg. Josh Matlow joining us on Toronto Today. That's really interesting on Terraplace. Sell, sell the city land to the federal government for a dollar. It's a little bit of a bait and switch, but you do what you can. But I think the number is really interesting. 155 acres is Ontario Place. Um, something as brilliant as Navy Pier in Chicago is 50 acres. Live Nation is going to take up a bunch of those acres. I'm guessing 12 or 14. So half? I mean, what's the right amount to keep Ontario Place public and still create jobs and still have some, uh, some, have some economic juice behind it? I think it's a valid question. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I wish our next guest had better door-knocking weather. I wish all 48 candidates had better door-knocking weather, um, but it'll probably be long sleeves uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, Mitzi Hunter's in studio with us. 21 today, 7 on Monday. So, you know, doors doors are, are more knockable today. People might be more likely to open the door and not think you're going to sell them like a, a snowblower or, a, you know, a scraper or gloves. How's everything going? Everything is going well. Um, I've been out this week talking about real issues, some, some of the things you encourage us to talk about in this city. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, the reception is good because, you know, it's not just about what's going on at Ontario Place and at the Science Centre that people are concerned about. Although I believe that where candidates stand on that issue, such as, you know, do we need a Science Centre up at Don Mills in, in Flemington Park? really gives you an insight into what kind of city they see. And um, I know that for me growing up in Scarborough and um, that science center was always so revered. It's and like, accessible. And accessible. And it's yeah. like, you know, a real excitement. Um, taking it away really says a lot, I think. It's a weird topic because this is me saying this, so you can weigh in. I thought it got too much of the oxygen or earlier in the week. And yet it's important, but I don't think anybody that, that is, um, you know, suffering from homelessness, anybody that doesn't have a job, anybody that's um, got huge problems or is worried about safety in, in the city or on the subway is, 
like the Science Center is an issue and it's kind of a how, how this is all going to go at Ontario Place could be deemed a microcosm of where we are in the province. So I get all that. But I also think that there are so many other things that people are going to mark the X next to somebody's name for beyond what the their opinion of what should happen with the Science Center in Ontario Place is. That's me saying that. What do you think? I agree with you. Um, you know, looking around the city, we can see that not everyone is doing well. There's a lot of visible homelessness in our city. You know, yesterday I was in front of a hotel that had been turned into a youth shelter. Mm. And the reality is that young people are living rough in some instances and experiencing homelessness. And that's not the kind of city that we want. I was at the Boys and Girls Club earlier this week and talking to them about the homelessness plan and you know, whether they saw it as important. And I talked about people, you know, taking refuge in TTC buses and shelters and in parks. And one young woman said to me, Mitzi, a lot of people are living behind buildings beside dumpsters in our city. And the way she relayed this to me was that this was something she was aware of. Yeah. And, uh, and so we have to do something about that. We have to address those issues. We've got to give young people a chance and uh, inter- intervene. You know, let them know that they belong and that we care about them in this city and, um, and give them the supports. I know you've got a, a two-step plan. We'll get into that. And, and you've costed it out, which, which is a tremendous benefit, I think, for the voter to see, you know, numbers on a balance sheet. But to your point, I think, I think so much about what you just said in that um, pandemic hits and, and life changes. And we were just talking about, you know, where kids are at with with reading and writing levels. Um, alarm bells should be going off to me in our school system. I'm, I'm worried we haven't done enough there. But I even think about mentors and people used to find the time to volunteer and maybe they haven't gone back to it or make donations to charity and they haven't gone back to that. And outside of your parents, we notice this even with our own kids eventually like your kids will listen to you about certain things, but the mentors you have outside your household, you probably are that to, to a lot of girls and boys who look up to you and say, I can lean on Mitzi. I could share something with Mitzi Hunter. I, I wouldn't tell my mom or dad. Like we all have those moments and mentorship outside of the house is massive. And it's very clear that we're letting too many kids without mentors because there's nowhere for them to go. There aren't youth activities. Um, there's too many people falling through the cracks based on that. Yeah, you know, um, a mother called me last week. Her name is Quina. I'm going to give her a shout okay. out because she thanked me. And she said, you know, Mitzi, my daughter met you and you sparked something in her that helped to change her life. And that's changed our family and our community as a result. And so young people need that adult in their life that will show them that, you know what, you matter. So what happens to those young people that don't really have that sense of connection? So I do have a two-step plan that I'm announcing today because in addition to the shelter side of things and providing that safe roof over the head, they also need program support to provide for those mental health and those well-being aspects that uh, that young people need. And so um, there is a, a successful program. It's called the Housing Outreach Program Collaboration, HOPC. And uh, this program provides the clinical support for mental health, the, the psychologist support, the social work support, that wraparound care that is needed at good quality, where young people will respect 
the type of uh, support that's being offered. Mm. And I'd like to have five of those teams deployed in our city to address the rising issue of youth homelessness. 11% of people who are homeless are teenagers and young people. That is unacceptable in our city. Uh, The second part to my program is to invest in community partnerships. So the city already has a community partnerships program, and I want to extend that grant to $100,000 so that these agencies that are doing the good work on the ground, many of their staff are experiencing burnout because of the overwhelming numbers. So I want to increase the supports and make sure that we give people the help that they need. You're, uh, one of the focuses also to you is reuniting families. And I think that's so important because we talk about people falling through the cracks. Oftentimes, um, this is where it's at, whether it's been something that, that's gone on in a house or the household gets broken or, or the, the, the teen or young person's deemed untrustworthy so they get kicked out. There's just no middle ground between the home and the street right now. And the idea that... Police have a difficult job. Their job is obviously to make sure, uh, you know, prevent crime, protect people, make sure things are safe. But but it, it goes beyond their jurisdiction almost to figure out if they could reunite a father and a mother or even a single parent with a teenager. And these are the things if we can put those jigsaw puzzle pieces back together, we break the cycle a little bit. Absolutely. We need to, uh, you know, where there's an opportunity and that family member could be anywhere. You know, mm. It could be an auntie, a, a cousin. Um, they don't even need to necessarily be in the same home, but that family tie and that family connection is extremely important that we protect and we preserve that um, and we give youth the the help and support that they need. You know, back when I was the education minister, I looked at who was graduating and who was not. And the people who were not graduating were uh, racialized youth, uh, youth with disabilities, youth in the care of children's aid, and, yeah. and when we explored that, LGBT2S uh, uh, youth, when we explored some of that, um, those that were in the, chair of kill, in the care of children's aid, mm-hmm. one of the factors was that we required by policy that you go to school where you live. Well, when you're in the care of children's aid, you often move. And, and what we realized is that we were taking away those relationships that, uh, that, that youth needed and, uh, and they weren't succeeding as a result. So we changed that policy. You know, I, I remember advocating for them. And similarly, you know, I want to help our young people so that they can grow up and succeed. Many are struggling with addictions issues, mental health issues, yeah. anxiety issues. And, um, and, and, and we have to make sure that they get the wellness support that they need at the time that they need it. So they don't, you know, fall through the cracks and then we lose them. Mitzi Hunter, Scarborough Guildwood MPP, is with us. Uh, in studio for another segment. And yeah, we, we talked about uh, you've got a two point, a two-step plan you're talking today uh, about today to ease youth-related homelessness. And, and the biggest thing is saying, um, let's get you so you're on your feet so you can do the basics. And the basics are, you know, being able to rent an apartment. The basics are even a, a part-time job. And um, we've talked about mentors. Everybody at some point, somebody took a chance on you. And somebody said, you know, I'm going to put some faith in the process here, but if you don't have those life skills and you make that bad impression early on or you can't show up on time for your job or anything like that, um, addiction gets in the way of that, depression gets in the way of that, it it starts a bit of a bad cycle in your late teens, early 20s, doesn't it? It does. But, you know, when I, when I meet with young people, I remind them that, you know, I was a young person too. You know, I had my first job in a thermos factory in Scarborough. 
And, um, and it was in that experience that I kind of, you know, pulled up my socks and said, hey, I got to go back. And <laughs> you learn you know, a lot about thermoses. I you bet. learn a lot about thermoses, <laughs> but also how hard it was to, to, to stand on your feet, you mm-hmm. know. So I had a lot of respect, you know, for, for my parents for, for working so hard, right? How and old were you when you got that first job? 16. I was 16 oh years old. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so for, for youth for today, you know, if they make a mistake, it, it shouldn't be fatal, Right. They should have a way out. And um, and we have to make sure we provide that. And we can't just see the struggle and not respond. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't just put them inside temporary hotels and say, okay, we've shut it all out. You know, we have to really work on more permanent solutions, more permanent housing, uh, help young people transition, provide transitional housing to get to permanent housing. And, uh, and those are the types of supports, uh, you know, if they're suffering with anxiety or depression or any of those issues that they actually have real supports through our health system, which they're entitled to. We just have to make it accessible and available to them. So the HOPC program that I'm announcing today is designed to connect them to those high quality services that they need. I want to get to affordable housing, but on the mental health front, you, I know you went to CAMH. I heard from a mom who's visiting her teenage son in, in CAMH right now um, for depression issues. And it's just, it literally is that one day at a time thing. But you talk about being overwhelmed. CAMH workers are are absolutely overwhelmed right now. They're burnt out. They're hanging on. Um, I don't know what we can do to make them feel in, incredibly more appreciated. But that institutions like that, if you will, institutes like that are just so critical right now. But the problem is we're pressing it more than ever coming out of, of the restrictions and the pandemic that we had. Yeah. And the, the staff there are so wonderful. I actually had a chance to, to go by there twice this week and, uh, and to see them in, in action. What an amazing institution that actually, actually has remade itself in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, there's been such a, an escalation in mental health issues that, that they've seen across actually all hospitals in Ontario. And, you know, these are some of the effects of the pandemic. So we, we need to give people the help and the support that they need. And the staff who are running these facilities uh, also need that additional investment as well, knowing that they will have the resources and, you know, the overnight staff and the nurse, the frontline nursing staff. Can we say thank you to our frontline workers who, you know, at the ex- the cost of their own uh, well-being and their own families help and support, they've been there uh, to support us. And that's one of the reasons, Greg, I want, you know, I'm running and I say I want a city that works for everyone everywhere because, you know, a lot of those nurses and frontline care workers, they live in the Scarboroughs and in the Etobicoke's and they commute into the core uh, to our, our amazing hospitals on University Avenue or like CAMH and, and they're providing that care. So we have to make sure that our city works for them too, that we have public transit and we have the systems and the supports that they need to, to get to work. I'll come back on housing, but um, you brought up something that I think is worth mentioning is given given that you've been an MPP as long as you have been and you have the experience. So you, I think you've got a macro vision for the whole province too. I've never seen so much interest in a mayoral election from the outer edges of the GTA. Everybody cares about this one. I like I'll run into somebody from Clarington. That's the, that's a long way out from Young and Dundas or uh, or Young and Blur. But they have an opinion. They have big opinions about what Toronto needs because there's there's a benefit or a cost 
to everything in in everything within 100 kilometers each way of here of Toronto succeeds or if it doesn't you must be spotting this I do actually I, I get a lot of comments uh, from people who live outside of the city because they might work here and and so th- people know that the success of this city is the success of the region, is the success of the province and the country. So Toronto has to work and we can't, you know, just let these issues that we see, whether it's homelessness or, you know, safety on TTC, uh, we can't let that slide because if, if Toronto doesn't succeed, the whole province and the whole country won't. Um, mm-hmm. So it is a, it's an important race and, um, and the perspective of, of the of the people in the race, um, it's worth really considering that. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, for me, you know, I want to s- make sure that I get out there, I talk to people, I listen to the concerns that they have, and I'm able to reflect that into the platform and into the policies. I'm going to come to affordable housing, I will, but is there something, you, you triggered a question for me, is there something that is maybe a more surprising concern that you are hearing on these doorsteps and at these meetings than you thought there was. There's just obvious issues. And I think we cover them and talk about them a fair bit. Is there something you're like, wow, I've heard that for the seventh time in three days. So it's more important than I even thought it was when I started running. The the surprising comments that I've heard I'm addressing in the homelessness. And that's one of the reasons why it's one of my early policies the, the spectrum of housing, uh, housing affordability is affecting everybody. Um, you know, I could be at the hairdresser and she's telling me, the, my clients are telling me that, you know, the cost of living in, in this city is a concern. Uh, I could be talking to, uh, you know, the young people and they're telling yeah. me, you know, look for it behind the dumpster, you know, that, so those are shocking. You know, I was at a, a a coffee shop. And, um, and when the, um, the, the person at the cash found out I was running for mayor, she, she said, you know what, look at the blue line bus at night because we as workers who work overnight, we can't get on it because it's filled with people who are precariously housed and they're seeking shelter. And they've got seats. And they've got seats and they're in the bus Isn't and they're, they're filling oh it up. gosh. Yeah. And that's at like midnight, one, and that's one at in the morning. Midnight, and that's at one in the morning, yeah. right? And so, you know. And, and they're filling up emergency rooms. I hear from people yeah. who are orderlies all the time. There's people bringing their kid in because they've got even a, yeah. a reaction to a nut allergy. So they drive. There's nowhere to sit. And there's six people sitting there that are clearly unhoused and, and struggling with something. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Hospital emergency departments, especially during the pandemic, they were, because when we said to people, you know, shelter at home, if you don't have a home, where do you go? A lot of people went to the emergency department in sure the did. hospital, right? And so these are the places that we have to look and to make sure that the policies and the platforms that are being put forward. You know, I haven't been a city councillor or a chief of police, but I have a lot of experience working at Toronto Community Housing as a chief administrative officer, CEO for Civic Action, a cabinet minister, hands-on experience to be able to look at things at scale and find solutions mm-hmm. that are workable. I had someone bring this up to me about um, affordable housing, and I, I'll take the hit for this idea, but you tell me what you think of it. City operates five golf courses. I was surprised to find out those golf courses don't turn a profit. I, got, I, I reinvigorated my life and started golfing again a few years ago. When I had little kids, I hated being away for six hours a day. I'm probably saying that because my wife's uh, listening right now, and I'm like, hey, you're gone for the whole day. It's not like going to a, a workout or tennis or whatever. So you give up your full day to play golf. 
But the fact that these courses don't turn a profit for the city, should the city own golf courses? Could we consider at least a, a contingency plan or an investigative study as to whether housing could fit there? I don't want to close up tennis courts or playgrounds or basketball courts where our, our young people play or even seniors play. But there's lots of places to golf in Toronto. We're not hurting for golf courses if we don't utilize these five. Is that an idea to consider? I think it's an idea to consider any city-owned asset or land and to think about where can we add more density mm -hmm. because there's already a service and an amenity there. Where can we add some housing that people can live? And, and as I said, housing is a spectrum, right? We talked about supportive housing, which I'm proposing that we provide 2,000 more units of supportive housing with the help and support that people need so they can stay housed and not fall into homelessness. But there are other housing that's needed more in the middle, mm -hmm. and that's where we have to address. Um, and so you will be hearing more from me on my housing plan. I'm very excited about that. It's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. I spent time working for Toronto Community Housing and considering housing issues very deeply in this city. And, uh, and so I'm very excited to talk about that in the coming days. Mm. Mitzi Hunter is with us in studio, uh, MPP for Scarborough Guildwood. Thanks again for visiting. I really appreciate it. I think you got some real substantive stuff here. And and again, you've costed it out because I think you're noticing this where yeah. people like doing what I do are now asking more, okay, that's your vision, but what does it cost? Because that could be the difference between a vote and, and not a vote. Absolutely. I'll, I will have a fully costed plan. Awesome. Mitzi Hunter joining us uh, in studio.